0: Taking stock with Mandy Johnston on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. This is Joe Lynham sending in for Mandy Johnson, and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour or so. This week on the show, we will look at everything from online disinformation, reforming Ireland's notorious planning laws, and Rishi Sunak's delicate balancing act of staying in power and the eventful week that he's just had. And you can email us, taking stock at newstalk.com. Dot com. But let's start with planning. On Board Planola should, according to its own rules, make a planning decision within three months of receipt of an application to build something. On average, developers don't hear anything for at least a year and it could take a further two years before the shovels actually go into the ground after objections, appeals and judicial reviews. But is the saviour to planning delays on its way finally? in the form of the new Planning and Development Bill, which was making its way through the Oireachtas at the moment. And I'm joined by Conor O'Connell, who is the Director of Planning and Development at the Construction Industry Federation, which clearly has skin in the game. Hello, Conor.
1: Hello, Joe. How are you?
0: Now, can you walk us through the key bits of the Planning Bill? It's one of the longest bills ever published, so I'm sure you've had great fun uh, reading all of it.
1: Uh, To be honest, Joe, we're still assessing it. We've had uh, legal eyes look over it, planning eyes look over it. We've looked over it ourselves. It's over 700 pages, as you've said. Third largest piece of legislation in the history of the state. So it does deserve careful analysis um, uh, and a careful read-through. Look, there are positives in it. You know, the reform of Um Mbortanala, the timelines in relation to the assessment of uh, planning applications the inclusion of national policy policy statements in relation to planning um some aspects of the reform of the judicial review process including sufficient intent Um, but then there are other aspects such as the extension of duration that we currently have concerns about the compliance procedures post the grant of planning um, and also as well then uh, who exactly is entitled to object to a, a planning application? Um, we would say on 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 many occasions that you know, someone objecting to a planning application should show that they are materially affected, or that they're sufficient, you know, sufficient grounds or insufficient intent. They should be strengthened as well. And also, we
0: believe. Am I, am I right in saying, uh, Connor? that someone uh, in Donegal or Kerry can object to a wall being built in Dundalk and even someone sitting in Sydney, Australia can object to that wall?
1: Absolutely, yes, that's correct. Now, Um, that's utterly ridiculous.
0: And will that be trimmed uh, in the new Planning and Development Bill? And how will it be trimmed?
1: I don't think it is trimmed. Um, That's our reading of it. Um, Look, there there are... uh, it is quite clear that anyone can still object. Um, what I was outlining there were the grounds in relation to the judicial review. Um, so that is a big concern of ours. Um, look, obviously the timelines. If the timelines are adhered to of 18 weeks or 26 weeks, uh, depending on the different types of applications, you know that would cut out an awful lot of the nonsense because... You know, there's less incentive then to object and to delay and to stall. However, it's unclear then what will happen if decisions aren't making those time frames. So we have to wait on the regulations. Um, But look, that is still the case that anyone can object to anything in Ireland. uh, And we don't think that's good enough. Um, um, We think that that should be strengthened uh, and that people who are objecting for commercial reasons should also be debarred from from objections. Um, That's our initial reading of it, John.
0: Now, we've all seen the RTE Investigates uh, documentary in which uh, two individuals were allegedly seen to be looking for money uh, in order to uh, cancel their planning uh, appeal and planning objection. Um, Will this new act prevent that type of, uh, I don't know, appeals tourism?
1: I don't know, Joe. Uh, being honest, uh, I, it's on, that program was a great program. It revealed, uh, and thankfully, it was it was timely in the way that it did reveal some of the situations that builders are put into. Um if you are there running out of permissions uh and you need to move your staff from one side to the next and you're subject to this sort of stuff, it, it can be it can be a big lever that you can hold over a builder. So we're delighted, you know, that, that program was aired and it revealed what is happening a, at times. Um however, look, I, I I still think that it doesn't necessarily rule out that happening again in the future. Timelines are critical in relation to ensuring that we have, uh, you know, more clarity within the planning system and a fairer planning system and a more open uh, planning system. Um, So, look, um, we'll have to see on that.
0: Everyone is entitled, of course, to, um, if they have a legitimate concern, to lodge that objection. But so many planning applications end up with judicial review, (JR). How will that be affected by the new bill?
1: Um I think the um the national policy statements will help here, where you know a law lot of the, the grounds for the district review have either been on environmental grounds or have been on the grounds of a conflict between what's in the local uh you know local authority development plan and maybe national guidance in relation to density or height or whatever it may be, so the issuing of national policy statements which a local authority must adhere to. Uh, in their development plan will clear out maybe some of those J.R.s. Um, But it is fair to say at this stage that we've over 30,000 units caught up in judicial review process. Many of them, from our perspective, would be on uh, minor technical and legal grounds. And we would be very concerned uh, about the very open system we have in Ireland in relation to taking judicial reviews. However... This legislation does talk about residence associations or other environmental bodies or groups having to be established for at least 12 months. You know, in the residence associations, there'll have to be a two thirds majority um, to vote of its members to pursue a judicial review. A constitution will have to be in place. So look, that will help. However, it is still a very open process and, um, you know, public participation is vital in the planning process. Um, but we must remember at all times that all of these objections are uh, for residential developments, are for um, objections on lands that have been deemed by the local authority through the development pl- plan process as being suitable for residential purposes. So, s- surely, if we have to have, have, have a plan led process, that an awful lot of this uh, could be ironed out. At the public consultation phase, when we have our development plans being drafted, these development plans take a long, long time to assess and to get passed by the local authority and the local councillors on it. So if a local authority deems a parcel of land is suitable for residential development, well then really when it comes to the planning application stage, there should be no surprises that Houses or apartments or duplexes, whatever it may be, are going to be built on this land. There's already been an extensive process undertaken to ensure that those lands are suitable for residential
0: purposes. Uh, So so when the development does get published, um, are you saying that, that local objections to houses being built after being published by the council should be ignored?
1: No, but certainly the ground should be narrowed um certainly it would be very difficult at that once a planning application is made um, you know to make if the national policy state statements uh, that are proposed in the act are implemented, then you know that should remove issues such as density or height from the arguments in relation to why uh, a residential development can't go ahead mm-hmm. um you can never uh, Public participation in the planning uh, planning process is vital. We, we all accept that. But an awful lot of the elements that could be adjudicated upon or disagreed upon should be ironed out at the development plan uh, stage.
0: Okay, now the Labour Party in the Dáil criticised the bill. Ivana Bacik, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, it said the bill was too lenient on property developers, that could include some of your members, of course, and not including a use it or lose it clause.
1: I'm puzzled. I uh, genuinely um, look from our perspective. This this legislation has some changes which we certainly do not welcome. The extension of duration seems to be like an almost like a new planning process in itself. The compliance uh, conditions in, that you have to give post the grant of planning to the local authority are far more onerous than what they were in the previous legislation. Um, look, I, I mean, there was there was in the up until 2021 in the old, or sorry, the existing planning act, there was, you know, you could get an extension of duration where there was significant commercial, technical, or other issues which prevented you from uh, going ahead. And that has been removed utterly. And the current, or proposed extension of duration provisions are far more onerous than what's there. The compliance provisions as well have changed, whereby... Uh, Currently, uh, a builder can issue compliance uh, and his proposals for compliance to a local authority within eight weeks. And if the local authority doesn't request further information, then it's deemed to be accepted. That has utterly changed as well. So there are conditions within this uh, and sections within this planning and development bill that are very onerous from a housebuilder's perspective. So I really don't understand that that um, that argument.
0: Let's give you a few other views. Uh, the Irish Planning Institute uh, welcomed the publication. Dr. Sean O'Leary, the president of the IPI, said, uh, said that it would make recommendations for amending and improving the bill and a crucial requirement would be the need to adequately resource the planning system across all sectors at national, regional and local levels to ensure the ambition of the bill is achieved. He's basically saying there's not enough staff out there, which is a legitimate concern. The Minister for Housing, Darrell O'Brien, the guy who's squiring it through the Oireachtas, uh said the legislation would facilitate increased housing supply. Will it?
1: Uh, well, certainly, um, and probably I should have said this at the start, Joe, you know, we welcome the focus on planning and the supply, uh, and one of the key determinants of the supply of housing is the supply of zoned land, service land, and of course, planning. And planning, as we all know, has been a real, real uh, difficult System to navigate. In fact, uh, elements of it, including board Bo- and, Bo- and, Bo- and all that, broke down during uh, the earlier part of this year and late last year. So it is fair to say we very much welcome to focus on planning and how we can navigate through the planning system uh, and de-risk the planning system and give greater clarity to the planning system. And all of that is is very very welcome. But ultimately, the comment there, I think it was from the Paris Planning Institute about resources. From our members' perspective, one of the key elements for the planning system is that it's adequately resourced. Mm. Um, and look, is, is it going to ex-
0: be resourced? Is there money being thrown at this?
1: There is. In, in, in fairness, you must say that, look, there's extra funding has been allocated to import and all to recruit more inspectors. Um, look, there were 230, I think, at the beginning of this year, that it's going to go up in excess of 300. Um, so all of that extra funding is very welcome and uh, I understand that proposals for, for extra resources and funding to local authorities as well um, is in the pipeline. So all of that focus and extra resources, but it's extra resources will be the key determinant of the success of this planning and development. And bill.
0: you spoke about on board Planola, that will soon cease to exist. They're going to rename it or rebrand it or something like that. Is, is that just moving the deck chairs around?
1: Uh, To be honest, Joe, I really haven't paid too much attention to the renaming of it. Um, Look, uh, our our key concern is that all, you know, all levels of the planning system are adequately resourced.
0: Okay, housing is an issue at the top of the political agenda. It will be one of the main issues in the general election, which will be held within the next, I don't know, 12 to 14 months. Um, Can you see it uh, being a winning vote for the opposition?
1: I don't know. Um, I, I honestly don't know, Joe. Look, all but we're, we're a non-political organisation. We just we just work within the within the framework and try and make and advocate and represent on what will improve the framework for housing supply. But ultimately, irrespective of whatever political party or parties or minister is in power, ultimately the supply of housing will be determined by the supply of zoned land, the supply of service land, the supply of planning permissions, and that we have an affordable, viable you know, home that we can deliver. And unfortunately, there are pressure points, especially in relation to planning at the moment and measures have been introduced to improve viability and affordability such as the development waiver and the water rebate scheme and the first home scheme help to buy scheme etc all of those are very welcome but also another element of planning that's currently under review that's equally as important to the supply of new homes is the revision of the national planning framework and we've got to ensure that we've enough zoned and serviced land in the areas of high demand, so that we can meet our housing targets, and it is not an exaggeration to state at the moment, Joe, that our some of our members in certain areas are reporting that they're literally running out of planning permissions on zoned and serviced land to deliver housing. Right. So it is vital that we get um, that we fix these uh, within the next, you know, within the next few months literally uh, and that we have policies that can be that can ensure we have more zone service land and planning permissions in place
0: connor thank you so much that's connor 'Connor, thank you very much director of planning and development at the construction industry federation you are listening to taking stock on news talk with joe linham standing in for mandy johnson after the break we'll ask whether the digital services act is actually keeping the internet safe or will it keep it safe Now, welcome back to Taking Stock. I'm Joe Lynham, standing in for the wonderful Mandy Johnson. Now, last month's horrendous and violent riots were stoked up by social media, notably on X and Telegram. But can the dissemination of online disinformation, such as anti-migrant and even... But can the dissemination of online disinformation such as anti-migrant messaging and even the public naming of innocent people be stamped out with the new Digital Services Act from the European Union, which is also making its way through the Irish system? Or will Ireland be too timid to clamp down on the goose which lays the golden corporation tax egg? Lee McGowan is with Silicon Republic and is on the line. Hello, Lee.
2: Hi Joe, how's it going?
0: Not too badly. Can you walk us through what the Digital Services Act is? Because it's a substantial piece of EU wide legislation.
2: Well, I guess I guess the Digital Services Act is essentially the EU's attempt to regulate the internet and to curb the spread of harmful content online, whether that be as you were saying, you know, the spread of hateful content on social media platforms. And I guess in particular, harmful content for children and teenagers. Um, for various online platforms, and I guess in particular social media platforms like the Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, that kind of thing. Um, it's the sister act to another piece of landmark regulation called the Digital Markets Act. And I guess both of them together is a way, I guess, is the EU's attempt to rein in on big tech, whether that be through the DMA's um, control that some of these companies can have, the dominance they can have in certain sectors, and then the Digital Services Act essentially putting more onus on... Companies to regulate the content that appears on their platform. Um, so that's what we're seeing. It's going to be, depending on how it's actually regulated, could be transformational for the internet. But uh, I guess, as you're saying, time will tell in terms of uh, how it will actually be regulated properly.
0: Now, what sort of powers does the DSA uh, bestow on governments or even the Commission in, in Brussels?
2: Well, the main thing is that um, essentially platforms have to be a bit more transparent in terms of how they moderate their content transparency around advertising giving more choices to consumers so that they can control what they see so it basically means they're subject to um i guess further investigations you know they have to sort of be showing that they are trying their best to tackle um online content there's various ways they can do this one for example a big thing that they're pushing is that it makes it easier for users to report if they have seen um, harmful content or content that breaches the SA guidelines. And then they'll need to be able to show that they can quickly and effectively remove that content. Um, if companies fail to comply with some of these rules, then they can face pretty significant fines. I believe it's um, it can be 6% of their global turnover. So obviously that could be a significant fee for you know multinational companies that operate in the EU.
0: Speed is essential, Lee, isn't it? Because when the horrendous incident happened on Parnell Square, when that uh, young child was stabbed, within, I don't know, within two hours, uh, the the whipping up of anti-migrant views uh, in this country via the Telegram messaging service and via X and other social media was pretty quick. And it, it appears as if the government were powerless to take that stuff down. Will the DSA enable that in the future?
2: Well, I guess time will tell. I mean, it's a developing uh, piece of legislation. I guess, I mean, I would hope, and I guess the EU would hope that the likes of the DSA will be able to actually clamp down on this. Um, But the main thing is that, for example, when something is running rampant online and going viral, um, right now it's very much up to governments and individuals to sort of see that, tackle the issue and report it. The DSA is attempting to sort of put more of the onus onto the companies themselves. They need to, you know, clean their own backyard, I guess you could say. So, I, into the specifics, I mean, I try to really say how they'll be able to regulate every single platform out there. For example, you know, Telegram operates in more of a, with a privacy focus. So, I say it will always be difficult. Yes, and they're in Dubai. There will always be difficulties in preventing the spread of content when it comes to, some services that you know focus on encryption and privacy and obviously there's benefits for having the ability to you know privately message people but as we're seeing that it can also be abused by groups with you know bad agendas um, I guess the bigger focus for the DSA currently is on the massive platforms. so again there's around 19 services that have been labeled as very large online platforms and they're the ones that in particular have to you know they have have some extra obligations. So I think the likes of Meta, which would include Facebook and Instagram, Google, um, Amazon, TikTok, they're the ones that are being particularly targeted
0: by the DSA. Um, I guess there'll be a case-by-case... 13 of the big 19 are based in Ireland.
2: Yes, and this is... Well, unfortunately, this has been true for lots of regulation in the EU, which is Ireland definitely ends up having to take the, uh, the brunt of enforcing the regulation. And we saw that with GDPR and you know, the fact that so many companies are headquartered here, we have the onus to actually be the leads and enforcers of GDPR regulation. So there will be a similar um, stance taken
0: when it comes to the DSA as well. And that means that other regulators, other national regulators, as part of a European-wide body of regulators, um, bully Dublin into taking action. We saw it with GDPR, whereby uh, certain governments, including Austria especially, um, objected to the very small fines and the slap on the wrists that the uh, Irish Data Protection Commissioner imposed on the huge platforms?
2: Absolutely, yes. The, uh, the DPC has been subject to um, a lot of criticism over the years. Now, again, I mean, to be neutral on this matter, the DPC does handle lots of massive GDPR cases and they have issued record fines over the years. But many groups and um, various politicians have referred to them before as a bottleneck for GDPR enforcement. Um, there's also the issue that many of the fines that they issued, which are some of their biggest fines, um, were enforced upon them by the European Data Protection Boards. Their original yeah. uh, plan to fine was not as big. So yeah, there has been issues. All eyes will be on Ireland for the next batch of regulation. I feel like the EU has um, will have learned from the issues that existed with um, GDPR enforcement, and we'll be probably taking a bit of a closer eye on how Ireland handles Indeed, both and we, the DMA and the DSA. Yeah,
0: and we have a new body, uh, the Commission Naman, uh, which uh, mm-hmm. is supposed to look after these things. We've interviewed Jeremy Godfrey before, the boss of the Commission. Um, does he and his team, do they have the resources? Do they have the expertise? Can they act swiftly? And are they going to prevent what we saw last month in Dublin?
2: Well, when it comes to can they prevent specific issues, I would say time will tell. And also, I think we're going to see case examples that will help to push further enforcement. That's true for any sort of regulation. You see a horrible example pop up, you know, a landmark kind of ruling is made, and that helps set precedent for the future. In Thomas Unamond's case, I would say they have a big battle ahead of them, um, having to be an enforcer for various big tech companies is obviously going to be a major challenge, particularly for a smaller country like Ireland. Um, I think they've hit the ground running pretty well. They've been on a massive recruitment drive and they're already um, publishing drafts of their online safety code, which will be essentially one part of their broader framework to manage online content. So they have time before the Digital Services Act really is coming into force and before we really need to start regulation. And that will be before um, the
0: summer next year, will it? I believe so, yes. Now, again,
2: it always takes time for these things to actually come into proper effect. I'd say once it comes in, we're going to see initial cases before we really start seeing results. But um, I think they have more time to prepare than, than when we saw, I guess, the chaotic uh, results of the GDPR initially for many businesses. Companies are aware that the DSA is coming. Uh, That's that, Sorry, companies are aware that the DSA is coming. Um, big tech has been given ample warning, and thankfully our regulators have also been given plenty of time to prepare for it. So well, I would say I have high hopes, but again, there, there is such difficulty in regulating online content, both in terms of regulating the actual companies and for the companies themselves. I mean, you know, to be... Elon the, Musk the, the,
0: and X have, have shown almost contempt for the Irish uh, Oireachtas by failing to turn up uh, to a special media committee only in the last few days.
2: That's it, yeah. X, or as I guess as people prefer to call it, Twitter, as it used to be known, um, has definitely taken a step back in terms of online content moderation under Elon Musk's rule. Um, you know, there's various um, various other social media platforms will voluntarily disclose to the EU how they've been trying to deal with misinformation, hate content, you know, to deal with issues with children, and obviously there's issues with various platforms. You know, X is not the only one, but it does seem that they have been taking steps to just. Take a step back from moderation they've been well they fired half the staff. They can... exactly and if you cut so many of your staff i mean you know how can you actually confirm or show that you have been regulating content if you don't even have the staff to manage the vast amounts of information out there so but again x is currently being uh it's in the initial phase of being investigated by the european commission so i think yeah, that's this right. idea of just, t- of just being, you know, of just avoiding the issue, that will only get them so far because and, uh, they will be subject to fines like everybody Even
0: else. Elon Musk, as, as rich and all as he is, won't want to be fined 6% of his global turnover, although his global turnover is falling like a stone. Um, Telegram, you mentioned briefly, they're based in Dubai. We did contact them and I sent them a, a list of questions, uh, but they've been very shy with their responses, Put it, to put it very diplomatically. Uh, they are not big enough to be included in the first wave of the Digital Services Act companies, um, but a lot of hateful stuff is disseminated on that messaging service.
2: Yes, I would say there's definitely pros and cons to the likes of Telegram, and there's groups out there who would advocate for the benefits Telegram provides. I mean, there's definitely been, there's definitely important services for, you know, encrypted messaging, um, and I don't think that should necessarily be removed entirely for the purpose of online regulation but it is a tricky line to follow to my knowledge telegram has essentially said that they will comply with dsa rulings but again it is a tricky one to enforce the issue of end-to-end encryption which again is something that you know telegram focuses on heavily um is going to be a a debate for years to come that is various countries that are pushing to remove end-to-end encryption or at least have the ability to uh break encryption if they need to, for specific purposes, like dealing with um you know child sexual exploitation material or to deal with criminal activity, you know sometimes groups will argue you need to have measures to be able to actually bypass this encryption to stop the spread of illegal or hateful content um It's hard to say what the right answer is, but I think telegram will be subject to some criticisms and scrutiny in the years to come, especially if um groups continue to use it for malicious purposes.
0: Lee, thank you so much. That is Lee McGowran uh, from Silicon Republic uh, on his sense on what the DSA will do, what it means. So coming up after the break, we'll turn our attention to our friends and our cousins across the Irish Sea and to Rishi Sunak, who's had a pretty awful week trying to get his famous Rwanda bill back on track. Now, welcome back to Taking Stock on News Talk. Uh, I'm Joe lineham uh, standing in for Mandy Johnson this week. Now, in the end, there were no rebellions as Rishi Sunak's Rwanda migration bill comfortably passed its second stage in the UK House of Commons on Tuesday night. Can that be seen as the end of the matter or merely the end of the beginning of the matter uh, to so-called stop the boats and to cease or quell the tide of migration which is uh, flowing to the UK as Britain looks forward to a general election? Lucy Fisher is the Whitehall editor with the Financial Times, rft.com. Lucy, Hello. Hello. Um, Rumours of the death of uh, the Rwanda bill have been greatly exaggerated. I suspect.
3: Well, look, I think that is um, that is right, but it's nonetheless been. A pretty damaging week um, for Rishi Sunak. While he didn't, in the event, uh, after some last minute scrabbling and an urgent whipping operation, uh, suffer any votes against the policy, I think we saw laid bare the scale of division in the Conservative Party, a pretty unedifying spectacle uh, of uh, briefing and counter briefing. uh, And uh, And families
0: fighting with each other.
3: And families fighting with each other, absolutely. Right. Not just one faction on the right, but five uh, factions, uh, now nicknamed by some of the uh, some of the groups, the five families, uh, a mafiosi sort of themed name that uh, has made others within the faction um, pretty annoyed. Um, uh, but of course, uh, not the only pressure that Rishi Sunak is facing in the centre moderate wing of his party, the One Nation group, also making clear that uh, they would find it intolerable if Rishi Sunak does bow to pressure, does follow through with his vow to those on the right to tighten up the Rwanda legislation.
0: Now, in Ireland, we don't follow every, um, every I that's dotted and every T that's crossed on this story. Remind us why Rwanda, an impoverished country in Eastern Africa, has become so important for such a huge country like the UK.
3: Well, look, it's because the uh, salience of uh, irregular illegal migration, the small boat crossings uh, over the channel from uh, France, and mainland Europe to the UK have become a really hot political topic in the UK. And the government's really pinned all its hopes on reducing this number substantially to this policy of removing asylum seekers to Rwanda, not just for processing uh, an idea that you know, has been pursued by countries like Australia, but to be based there, um, even if uh, asylum is granted. And the UK government's hope is that if these flights got off the ground, if asylum seekers um, are uh, removed to Rwanda, that that will serve as a deterrent from other people making that perilous journey across the channel um, because they will uh, essentially realise they won't be allowed to stay in the UK even if they make it over here. But obviously, you know, we are so far away from, you know, those flights taking off in substantial number. This uh, emergency uh, legislation won't be coming back to the Commons until mid-January, we expect. Uh, And even if it makes its way through there with, without suffering um you know more battles uh, from the, the centrist and right-wing factions in the tory party it's set to meet significant hurdles in the house of lords as well
0: Now, I read somewhere that the UK government has already spent close to 300 million euro on this Rwanda and not a single person has been flown successfully to the new asylum camps in Rwanda. This makes it a make or break financial issue, I'm guessing, as well as a political issue. But is the UK public engaged with this? In other words, is this the kind of things that people talk about at the water cooler or in the supermarket or, you know, in the golf club?
3: Well, it's a really good question. I mean, it may not be a sort of a hot topic of conversation, you know, day in, uh, day out at the at the, at the water cooler in uh, down the ledger centre. Um, but you know, from the data we have, uh, the pollster YouGov keeps a tracker of the issues that are most important to the public at large. Now, that finds that immigration tracks third behind the economy and the NHS for the public at large in in the UK. But for those people who voted conservative in 2019, immigration is now the number one issue, uh, you know, more than the cost of living, more than NHS waiting lists, what matters to those voters. So you can see why the government considers this an existential issue for the Conservative Party at the next election.
0: Is it an important one for the Labour Party, which is streets ahead in the polls or are they saying anything about this?
3: Well, I think it undoubtedly is an important issue for for Labour as well. At the moment, I think that they have, uh, you know, uh, focused their attentions on attacking the government over the failure to get the Rwanda policy off the ground. They say it is a policy that is... um, unaffordable uh, unworkable and unethical. Uh, but there will be i think increasing pressure on labor to spell out in more detail what they would do if as the poll suggests they are headed into government uh, next year um because at the moment it's quite woolly what they've set out it's a lot of kind of warm rhetoric about smashing the smuggling gangs um, but not a lot of detail about how they would do that and any other um, parts of the policy they'd pursue to try and get these numbers down.
0: Mm. Do you think Sunak will survive this um, bit of legislation? It's going to be back in Parliament at some point, as you said.
3: Well, look, you know, I think he probably has passed the moment of maximum danger. Uh, You know, the fact that, you know, the would-be rebels didn't um, revolt and vote against it or or defeat it at this second reading, it seems to me um, unlikely You'd, you'd potentially see them vote against it um, next time. But let's see, there's everything to play for. Many of these, um, you know, critics on the right of the party believe they have extracted this row from Sunak to tighten the legislation. As I say, that has been deemed unacceptable by centrist Tory MPs, so it, it is difficult to see Um, how Downing Street navigates a way through on this issue. And just beyond that, you know, if we're talking in the more medium to long term about Sunak's uh, survival as prime minister, you know, the spectacle of the party fighting so publicly over this issue of migration and and how the Rwanda policy should be pursued about the UK's future inside the European Convention on Human Rights. uh, You know, he's got a lot of battles coming down the line that are only going to dent his electoral prospects.
0: Now, your FT colleague, Janan Ganesh, wrote a wonderful piece during the week in which he said that Sunak, who comes from a Goldman Sachs and a banking background, doesn't really get politics because he assumes that people can be negotiated with and that can be, you know, bribed to a certain extent politically, whereas he's up against some real zealots who don't really care about what's good for the UK. They only care about what they don't want or what they do want.
3: Well, I think there is. Uh, I think I think I'd agree that you know Sunak's lack of political experience. You know, he's only been an MP for a very short amount of time. You know, is shining through in some ways. Uh, and you know, it's it's a sort of uh, it's a point that's made by you know, even some of his allies that you know he's very good on the detail, but sometimes um, you know, and that that sort of speaks to his reputation as a technocrat, but sometimes quite short on the vision. Stuff that you you know you really need to sort of be able to communicate as a leader in order to bring people with you in, a, in an overarching way you know and I think he's going to find um, that potentially a challenge when he has to try and pitch. His vision of the UK and what a five-year term under his leadership would look like um, in the general election campaign.
0: Now, he wasn't just dealing with stopping the boats or um, Rwanda. He had a pretty busy week appearing before the official judge-led inquiry into what happened in 2020 during the pandemic. How did he get on?
3: Well, look on that. I think he uh, he survived it pretty well. You know, tough questioning for Hugo Keith, Casey, the lead counsel to the inquiry, a big focus on Eat Out to help out um, the scheme he uh, determined and devised as chancellor in order to try and save the hospitality industry. I think he put up a good fight. You know, As, as we know with, with Sunak, he can be quite stubborn uh, and sort of uh, entrenched in his positions. And that's how we sort of saw him at the inquiry, not giving uh, an inch, um, very much making the case to try and communicate and explain why he had pursued certain policies, and I think particularly on the Ecat to help out uh, scheme Which, while there he, had which been he didn't discuss with
0: the scientists he just went ahead himself
3: well he didn't but what but, he didn't, but what he um, argued was that while he hadn't told them in advance of announcing it, there was this period of several weeks between the announcement of it and its introduction, and he says that you know no one raised concerns with him in the meantime. Um, so he, he's sort of arguing it's hindsight, with which you know scientists are now trying to kind of heap opprobrium on him uh, about it.
0: Apparently, his four favourite words during his evidence wa- uh, were "I can't recall."
3: That's true. Uh, I can I can believe that, although I wasn't personally uh, you know counting it up. But um, you know they are asked a lot of detailed questions. And you know, saying you can't recall may be frustrating um, for you know bereaved families, for anyone watching the inquiry. But you know, it's uh, you can see it why, as a politician, it's uh, it's a go-to stock answer for many of those giving evidence. Um, partly because it was a while ago now, and partly because you know it's not going to cause headlines in the same way that making you know um, eyebrow-raising or even jaw-dropping um, claims or revelations is.
0: Yeah, Uh, and of course he he lost all his WhatsApp messages, which was very convenient. Um, I'm not sure I I can recall or I can't recall uh, washes when it's only three years ago. Okay, Uh, can I move across to the Labour Party and ask you, um, are they looking to you as a seasoned observer as a government in waiting?
3: Well, look, I think in many ways uh, they are. You know, uh, I think that they have managed to project themselves as a sort of serious party, uh, you know, one that, you know, you wouldn't find kind of falling prey to the sort of toxic culture uh, that has been laid bare in the COVID inquiry, some of the kind of aggressive, uh, insulting and misogynistic language that we saw used about senior officials in text messages, you know, the culture that led to Partygate, which has obviously been the subject of, uh, you know, criminal uh, penalty notices uh, for some of those involved. However, I do think labour still has an uphill uh, you know struggle to kind of professionalize its operation. you know there's still a, a lot of pitfalls it could yet face before we get into the election campaign uh, and then especially in the short campaign those final few weeks, which frankly is when most members of the public properly tune into the debate and decide what they make about you know policy and particularly what they make about the personnel at, at the top of the tree you know there is this sort of worry among many in labour that Keir Starmer, again, a bit like Sunak, is very technocratic, you know, has had a very respectable and impressive, you know, career prior to politics, but fails to excite and fails to inspire. And I also think when it comes to policy, you know, Labour seem pretty far behind the curve, given how, you know, we could be seeing an election called as early as spring in terms of, you know, where their policy and manifesto is at. So it's going to be, you know, a pretty busy time for them as soon as the Christmas break is out of the way.
0: Now, we here in Ireland aren't afraid to slag off Brexit and I know that the Financial Times is certainly very critical of it but why won't Labour even talk about Brexit given the fact that it is demonstrably not working for the UK economy and polls clearly show that the public regret it?
3: Well, uh, you know, I think the sense was that this was, you know, a democratic referendum and the mandate has to be respected. Uh, Beyond that, you know, it was such a divisive time throughout society families even cleaved apart by you know members on, on on opposite sides of the debate and it got so toxic that there there is a sense they don't want to risk alienating the public you know even people who do think that brexit was the wrong call many of them don't want to see this you know reprised as a question so i think uh, labor are very alive as well to the potential attack line by the conservatives that they are trying to reverse Brexit, if they did um, make more noises about it, um, that could potentially see them, you know, uh, lose seats they could otherwise have won, uh, especially across the North and Midlands.
0: Which doesn't look like the case at the moment. What's your best guess on uh, how many seats or votes uh, Labour might get?
3: I think it's just, you know, it's far too, um, far too far out to really say, but it's not looking good for Rishi Sunak that, you know, in the past few weeks, despite a number of attempted resets, from, you know, in early September, uh, I think it was, you know, the the bid to kind of row back on uh, net zero policy. Then uh, we had the party conference where he had that abortive attempt at Presenting himself as the change candidate, we've had a reshuffle, we've had the autumn statement, and nothing is seeming to move the dial for the Conservatives, who are hovering at the sort of you know an average of twenty points behind uh, Labour. Do you so not,
0: do you not get a sense uh, that know, the public has made up its mind, and that literally nothing that the Tories do uh, is going to shift that after thirteen years in power?
3: Well, I think nothing in, in, you know this far out from the election appears to be having any effect on them. I think Labour, you know, have been circulating the message in the past week or two that the short campaign of recent elections, you know, whether it be Spain, Australia or recent-ish UK elections, 2015, 2017, we've seen, you know, vast swings in the polls um, that have seen the narrative shift dramatically uh, and the eventual results, you know, shift dramatically from what was predicted by the polls only a few months out. So, I think Labour are very alive to the idea that you know this isn't set in stone. Um, while you know morale in the Conservative Party, even at pretty senior echelons now, is very uh, pessimistic. Um, you know I, I think there has been the sense that election dynamics are quite volatile in the recent uh, in the recent few, few years, and therefore nothing can be taken for granted by Labour. And there is a sense among some of the Conservative Party that there is still all to play for.
0: Lucy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, That's Lucy Fisher, Whitehall editor with FT. And that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And just a reminder that while the show is broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, it's also available as a podcast First, from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks to our producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Ellen Kenny and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo de Silva on sound. Any comments on today's items, you can email us, takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more besides. But from the Taking Stock team and me, Joe Lynham, standing in for Mandy, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.